0: Don't be an asshole, Daddy. Oh, Jesus, please help me not to become an asshole.
1: Enlighten me if by
2: the off chance it's already too late. I don't want to let my opinions dumb down my actions or fall asleep to the sweet sound of my own.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 19 of Recovering Asshole, the podcast where we unpack the invisible knapsack of privilege and figure out, you know, it's worth waiting for a really good conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Randy Blazak, and we uh, on this podcast try to figure out how to talk about the issues of privilege and power without feeling like schmucks, and certainly one of the big ones is race. We always come back to race and, and the issue of white privilege, it seems challenging uh, to no end to be able to talk about this issue, even though it's been my life's work. It's still kind of (laughs) difficult to figure out how do we actually do it. So I thought I'd call in an expert for this. Uh, We're going to be talking to Donna Maxey. Donna is the founder and host of Race Talks, which since 2005 has been having these monthly conversations in Portland, Oregon about race, gathering people together, panels, experts, and community members as well as facilitators to have deep, courageous, penetrating conversations about everything from police profiling to hate crimes to gentrification uh, and everything in between. Uh, and she is a wealth of information. She's lived in this town a long time. And she sort of understands, as an African-American woman, what the hang-ups are of white people, or at least how she sees it, to talking about race. Why is it still so hard for us to talk about race, especially in a city that's as white as Portland, where there's this perception that we're in some post-racial utopia? Uh, people of color will quickly set you straight on that one. So I've been waiting to have this conversation for a long time, so that's that was part of the delay, is just waiting to get Donna uh, in front of the mic. And she graciously invited me to her house in North Portland, made a pot of coffee and some really nice freshly blended juice, which I'm sure is good for me. <laughs> and uh, we had this great conversation about the challenges of talking about race in this day and age, and so I'm just going to let her carry the conversation because... Um, she She's got some wisdom that's worth uh, the rest of us listening to. So let's listen.
0: I go back to inception and conception. <laughs> in Portland. Um, my parents came here in the early forties from Texas. They're part of the Great Migration. Oh, sure. And the, and they my my dad has always been a very independent type whatever other people are doing, you know, he's going to do his independent thought thing. So most black folks went east, he went west. Mm-hmm. Most black folks went to California, he went up further north. Most black folks went to Washington, he went to Oregon. Most black folks became Democrats, he became a Republican. <laughs> so he's, you know, and he, and his thing was, is, you know, he'd never voted before and it had never been, um, they were all the same to him. And the or and the Republicans were in power and he joined the Republican Power party um, interestingly he was uh, very active in the Republican Party and was um, excuse me um, compatriots with um, Mark Hatfill who became as you know governor and then senator and uh, Clay Myers who was Secretary of State and then uh, another guy named Bill English Um Bill Ireland. No, Bill Ireland. That's right, because there was a Bill English. I was a black guy. Bill Ireland was a white guy who lived in Malala. And we used to go visit their family every year for Fourth of July. So that was quite the experience, going down to Malala uh, for the Malala Buckaroo Rodeo. So, (coughs) great fun. Um,
2: Did he come for war work? Because that was part of that migration.
0: Yeah, he applied. He had been a teacher in the South, and he applied to teach... And was not allowed to teach because they were afraid that he was going to uh, attack the poor little white girls. Mm. You know, I, I don't know what it is about white women that they are just so overly sexed that men of color cannot control themselves. <laughs> so you know, it's like <laughs> so I mean, and my dad, you know, this big buck is what what they said. And uh, Daddy was six feet tall and weighed a hundred and. Fifty-five pounds, mm. so you know he, he couldn't have been too big of a big of a guy, but anyway, um, they were interested in him on several positions until they saw his face. Wow! So um, yeah, it, it's it's he he had quite the interesting story. So anyway, uh, my mom went to college. She got her MRS. Mm. and and um, and came out with Daddy, and um, they were quite the couple. They were quite the couple, and our childhood was. My part of it, I, I can't speak for my brothers and sisters, I have two brothers, two sisters, uh, was very idyllic. Um, when I talked to my girlfriend who grew up in New Orleans, a lot of our growing up is parallel, because there was a quite the sizable black community here then. So, you know, there there were white people in our community, there were Asians in our community, but there were primarily African-Americans, and you knew everybody for blocks and blocks and blocks.
2: Was this in the Albana neighborhood?
0: Yeah, we lived on Borthwick between Knott and Graham, and um, because there was no... Um, <clears throat> and everybody knew knew everyone, and uh, my dad had a barbershop. When he couldn't get hired as a teacher, then he became a barber. Uh, he had done that as an advocation in college to earn extra money, and so... He did that. Even even trying to become a barber here in Portland was was a task because he went to the barber college, and uh, the guy took his money and threw it on the floor. Oh. Said we don't accept ends here, and so uh, Daddy said, and this was his full tuition. And Daddy said, um, before I pick that up, you can have it, oh. and walked out. Wow! And um, ended up. Meeting a man named uh, Elijah Cash Garfield Cash, who, um, who was barbering in the shipyards, and ended up going. Who encouraged Daddy to come to Vancouver, go to barber school there, and he did. He went to barber school there, and uh, interesting enough, that 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 little river, you know, the Columbia doesn't seem like it's that wide, but it's. In terms of philosophy and opportunities, mm. totally different, and um, so he got his barber license there, and then they had to give it to him here.
2: So you, Vancouver was more <clears throat> tolerant than Portland.
0: Washington has always been really well. You know that Oregon uh, started yeah. with with the ch- in its charter to not have black people or people of color sure. in the state. Um, and so, even though we they've always had black folks here, you know, like Beckwith Pass, and um, who, who Beckwith Jim Beckwith was um, a cowboy explorer who helped people come through through the Rockies, and you know when they were they were dying before and
2: yeah, so um, this is kind of one of the things I wanted to talk about because Oregon does have this unique history and mm-hmm. we are the only. Racial exclusionary state, although many others were sort of informally similar, but you know it was written into the constitution. It was there until the twenties, and it sets up a little bit of the climate, including why North Albina was sort of the one neighborhood that your family could probably live in in those days. So there, there is an there is an interesting history here. I think you know there's a perception about Oregon as a progressive blue state where, yeah, she's, she's shaking her head. Um, no. So, so let's talk a little bit about what, I, 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 and you may kind of talk about why you started Race Talks in the middle of this, but why is it so hard to talk about race in Oregon? Why, why is there this, among white people, uh, a kind of delusion that we've solved the problem that we're post-racial, that we're, we don't have these problems that the Deep South has? And you know that we're sort of better than those folks, when in fact, in many ways, it's the opposite.
0: Well, I think there's the the difference between the North and the South is the explicit and the implicit, mm-hmm. and the other part about the South. My daughter, live, um, my daughter Shana, went to college in the South. Uh, she grew up in California. Went to college in the South, um, both for undergrad, and then she went to law school in Louisiana. And what was so interesting for her is that she noticed the difference was that in the South, white people acknowledge you. Yeah. Here, white people ignore your presence. Recently, the other day, I was walking down off of Mississippi and two white guys walked past me. Now, I will take into account the fact that I am 69 years old. And men have a tendency to not look at women who are not in their demographic. Right. So I will accept that. But they walked, there were guys in their 40s or 30s or something, and, um, and they walked by and didn't look at me. And then a third white guy came by, and he's looking at the ground, looking down. Ahead of him, and then two other white guys, probably in the same demographic, you know, in thirties, forties, came by, and one kind of looked at me like just for a a split second. I said, "Excuse me, I have to ask a question. Am I invisible? Can you see me?" They go, "Yeah, we can see." I said, "I thought I was invisible." Jay wow. was. I just had three white guys walk by me, and they just totally ignored my love presence. Donna Maxey,
2: that you would do that.
0: I, I can't believe that, you know? And so, so the one guy, they go, oh, we're so sorry. Yeah, we can see you. We, we're sorry that happened to you and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, thank you. And I said, well, you did kind of look at me, so tell your mother she done good, okay? <laughs> so then I, I walk a little bit further. Next block, here come two more guys. They happen to be Asian. And the first guy, he was so funny, I thought, he's looking down directly down at the ground not ahead of him but just directly down not ignoring my presence very aware that I'm there but I'm just not going to give you eye contact and the second one who was right behind him was kind of looking ahead sort of and then when I got near them he kind of furtively looked at me and kind of like and looked away, and I thought I'm not going to say anything to them because I might make them jump. So, no. <laughs> no. And I had already done my thing. I was already laughing about that first situation. So, you know, I what I have noticed, and and I I live here in um, in North Portland, um, in what is supposed to be gentr- the gentrified. It, it's starting to become gentrified out here. Uh, what I always like to tell people these people are not the gentry. Gentry are wealthy landowners. Right. Actually, I should say wealthy people who have been given a lot of land is who the gentry were. But, um, and these are, these are white folks who have a bank loan I can't get. They got a bank loan I can't get. They're trust fund babies. They came from California and sold their house there that was you know next to nothing and got millions more because of their property values there, and came here, and now they're they have they're here, and I think that a lot of people are here in Oregon intentionally, intentionally, because it's a very white state. It's it's not sad, but it's kind of middle class here in Portland, and I you know middle class when you think of middle class you think of thirties forties um young families, singles, white. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't think of people of color as being a part of that necessarily. Um, or I should say white folks don't think of it. Yeah. And if we look at television, which informs our thinking, or movies or videos, then all of that is fed to us that we're that people who look like me are not a part of that picture. Mm-hmm. People who look like me, who have my beautiful brown complexion. My mom used to tell me, you're a pretty little brown thing. And I thought, well, gee wish well, she hadn't lied about too much anything else. I get, <laughs> she must have been telling the truth about you that are. too, you know. and Or people with gray hair, mm-hmm. you know. People ignore, you know, they have a whole different attitude about you. I mean, I can go places. I don't look my age, and so if I go in some place and I have a hat on, the response I get is very different really? than when I take that hat off. Wow. And what's even more interesting is that if people see me with a hat and what and they've seen me without the hat before, they will not recognize me. Mm. And then I take the hat off and they go, oh, I didn't realize that was you. I'm like, wow. So people don't... And, and this is not just this is not just white folks. This is p- people, mm-hmm. because we're all the same. We're all the same. We 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 think we're so different.
2: Well, I have a a a kind of counter story to the notion of being invisible in the South. So I grew up in the South, and so this story takes place um, at in Orangeburg, South Carolina, which mm-hmm. has its own tortured racial history at the South Carolina State Fair. Don't ask me why I was there in the early 1990s, and I'd met um, a young white woman at the fair. This is sort of like an Elvis movie playing out. <laughs> and we were walking around, going to the rides, and there were two uh, young African-American guys walking toward us, and I just, you know, I said hi. And she said, don't look at them. Don't look at She used the N-word. She said, don't look at them in the... This is, you know, the end of the relationship, by the way. Don't look at them in the eye. You can't look at them in the eye. And it was a, it was an issue in the south of if you do make that eye contact you are invite I guess as a white woman the fear is you're inviting some type of unwanted attention um, or challenge and it was it was sort of the other side of your experience of walking down Mississippi where the, this white person was afraid to make the the eye contact and of course and I'm sure those guys it added to their feeling of invisibility like the people won't even look look me in the eye because of their fear or whatever but her side of it was if i do that then i'm breaking some really important racial boundary because you know in the south i mean when you talk about the difference between the south and the northwest i felt it too like the south is more open about its race. when you have the confederate battle flag hanging over your mm-hmm. state capital you know you know race is an issue mm-hmm. where here is sort of this you know myth that all these things have been solved and we don't acknowledge it now sometimes I'm wondering which is worse the the kind of more blatant racial polarization in the south where at least it's an issue and we can talk about it or hear this sort of this notion among white people that you know we don't have those problems
0: I think my personal opinion and and, and uh, I was talking to a young person who said that they were having trouble growing up because her parents were divorced. And with the mother, there were very definitive things that this child knew that they could do. You know, and said, in fact, there were things that, that they didn't ask their mother because they knew what the answer was gonna be. Um, you know, whether, yeah, you can do this, or no, you can't do this, or these are the guidelines. Whereas with the father, the guidelines were not apparent. You know, and and they said there were invisible walls. And I said, what do you mean by invisible walls? They said, today no might be here right in front of me. Tomorrow, for the same issue, no might be six feet back. And the next day, no might be two feet away from me. So I never knew where I stood. And so it made me crazy. Because it was never consistent. Mm. And I think for... That's the difference between racism in the North and in the South. Excuse me. In the South, you're very clear about things. Whereas in the North, it's those invisible walls. And you never know where you stand. Yeah. You never know what's when it's coming. That or makes it's perfect not, sense. Or not coming. And... Um, but I also did an experiment, and I I remember years ago um, when I worked for this and one of the departments for the state of California, there was a woman who, an African American woman. There was there was about five or six young black women. We were all in our thirties, Oh, we were all cute too, and <laughs> and so we were friendly and we hung out and we were all managers and. Um, what was so interesting is this one was unmarried and didn't have children, and she was a Republican. And every time we saw her, she's with some white guy. Like you know, she and she'd be dating a different white guy. This you know, they would date a year or two and then they break up. And she's like doctors, lawyers, Indian chief kind of guys. I mean, nobody who didn't have some status. It's like where are you getting these white boys from? And I had to ask her. I said, I was married to a white guy. I don't know how you do this. What is it you do? And she said, oh, I just smile at them. And they come over. I look at them and I smile. And I go, you do what? Right. <laughs> I look at them and I smile. And so I started watching women. And what I found is that white women tend to be much more visually... Giving a lot of visual cues about what they think about a man, mm. and and doing their feminine thing, whereas black women didn't. I didn't look at latinas; I just was looking at black and white women. And so what I found with um, white women is that, if say for instance, and this, and I, I talk about this, that I think the weather has a huge impact on how people treat each other. Huge. Sunshine makes people act differently. And so we were in Sacramento and the sun shines, you know, and so um, a good portion of the year. And so anyway, I I watched the women, you know, it happened to be a warm time of the year and um, watched in particular... a a young white woman with her friends coming down the street. She had a couple of friends, and there was a black guy coming toward him, good-looking guy. And the one in the middle was the one who thought he was cute. So she's talking to her friends and giggling and doing her hair, touching her hair, Uh looking at him, smiling, and touching her clothes and kind of accentuating her feminine body you know pulling her shirt down or doing this or doing that and I thought interesting so by the time she got they got halfway to each other because they started like a block apart when they got halfway down the block she's smiling at him and looking directly at him and he's looking at her and when they get next to each other now, they're, they're talking.
2: Right, right. They already have a relationship yeah, by that point.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then I started watching black women. And, and this wasn't the only white woman I saw do this. I saw a number of them do that, and do that with white males, too. Then I watched black women. I thought, now, what are we doing differently? And what black women did is they did not look directly at men. They would look at a man from a distance, and then they would look down, or they would look away, like they were looking at something else. And then when, if it was a black male, they would look at him just before they got to each other. But by that time, he's not looking at her so much. And so it would kind of be maybe a quick glance and then just go on by. When black women went past white males, it was like they were walking past a wall that had no pictures on it. Just like, psh, you are not there. I don't even see you. And so this friend and I, we talked about it. And we said, "What? there is something going on here. And and at that time in our culture, this has been over 30 years ago. It's been almost, wow, almost 40 years. I'm getting up
1: there. It happens.
0: I am. Wow. So it was almost 40 years ago. Black women were not sexualized in this culture. Black women were more... um, Yeah, you you didn't see... I mean, all of this butt-shaking in the screen and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff, there was none of that. And so... But you did see it with white women. There was the program Laugh-In and, you know the bikinis and the body painted and women wiggling all over the camera and everything. And as I used to say, you know, it's real hard not to want a white woman in this culture because they're draped half-naked between uh, over everything from bubblegum to lawnmowers, you know. So, I mean, if you see something often enough, you're going to want it. And um, But black women were not in that position. And when you saw how black women dressed, it was very modest, even in the summer, shoulders covered, arms covered, uh, not real tight, longer, and black, white women were more free with their bodies and, and with their clothing. So a difference in how, how they, they, they went about it. Sure. Here in Oregon, what I have noticed is that people don't look at each other. And that was one of the first things I noticed when I came back to Portland. I was accustomed, growing up with the black community, that, you know, you give the head nod. It's an acknowledgement that black folks have always done to each other that, I see you. I know you're there. Hey, we have a kinship. And some people do it, some people don't. This younger generation doesn't do it so much. And of course, being me, I'm like, "Hello, young man. How are you?" <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, know, Oh, I, I'm fine. You know. It's like, yeah. See me. Mm-hmm. Know that we have a connection. And I don't just do it with with black people. I, I sometimes I just mess with folks all
2: the well, time. Well, and this, is, and this is, ties in perfectly with the whole theme of doing these conversations. Is that there are so many things as a white person. That, that I don't see, that I don't experience, that aren't part of my experience. So, so it's hard for me to say other people having this experience. So, and this is the notion, uh, Harlan, uh, Harlan Ellison comes to mind, but the notion of being the invisible man, mm-hmm. you know, that invisibility or the double marginality. I think that was Du Bois that said that. Like, you know, you have sort of this invisible status in America and to what, what that's like to experience that on a day-to-day basis, just walking down North Mississippi... Avenue, you know, when people aren't looking at you, like that, that is not my experience, and I have to think that, that there's a cumulative effect of that of having to struggle to get people to acknowledge, hey, I'm standing right here, and, and so what, what? Part of this is about the sort of emotional impact of being other Otherized is the word we Othered. use. Othered, right? Being other <laughs> otherized. It sounds otherized. Like, Things like that we would do to our laundry um, <laughs> that. Um, that I am centered as a white male, right? I'm I'm kind of naturally the center of the attention when I walk into a room because it's assumed I'm there for some official reason or something. Right, right. Right, so I don't ever think that I'm going to have to sort of say, hey, I I had a student who is African American who um, dressed really well to class. He wore a suit, and he, he pointed out one day when we were talking about the notion of white privilege, he said, Randy, you should look at how, and I had to, press him to call him Randy because he wanted to call me Professor Blazak you you have to you come to class wearing whatever you're wearing Mm -hmm. jeans and a t-shirt and because you're a white male your authority is assumed so you can you don't have to dress up as a student as a and a black male student I'm sort of assumed that I must be here because I'm on a sports scholarship or I'm not serious about academics and I dress this way just to let people know that I have a right to be here and I know what I'm talking about. I have to try a little harder just to be believed in it. It was something that, you know, was sort of completely off my radar. And I think about how I kind of walk into the room and how I'm seen versus somebody else who isn't in my skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to think that over the course of a lifetime, that that is, um, you know, a little bit wearing. wearing. That's, the word. <laughs> That's the word I'm looking for. Is a little has a little bit of a draining effect on a person
0: it does uh but there are multiple ways to handle that and 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 what I didn't finish because I because I I go on
2: okay
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do I do I'm a a, a raconteur I tell you um but what I was going to say is when I came to Portland what I noticed is that white folks don't look at each other Mm. When I first moved out here in this neighborhood, I used to teach out here. And there were a lot of kids of color at my school, Latinos, Asians, African-Americans. So when I moved out this way, I assumed that there would be people of color in this, in this neighborhood. There aren't. They're s- localized in one small area. And I'm like, wow, okay. So after a year of living here, uh, I knew three people, three homes, sort of, the people. And, um, I said, you know, we need to have, we need to have, I don't know who the people are in the neighborhood. We need to know who the folks are. Let's have, and they had just started this neighborhood night out in, uh, I think it's in August where they, or it's July, where you invite your neighbors over, excuse me, and have a block party. And, um, so we did that. One of the neighbors passed out flyers, you know, four blocks wide, 10 blocks long. Of course, I ended up doing most of the work. Of course and, um, we had about 40, 50 people who came. We had, you know, we got prizes from different organizations in the community. McDonald's gave drinks. We had, we bought hot dogs and stuff. Uh, Fred Myers didn't do it because we waited to, you know, it was too short a timeline for them to donate. But, you know, it was, it was nice. 40, 50 people and we made it a potluck. And, some of those people, we, we got to talking to each other, and we had games and, you know, trying to get people to talk. Found out that some of these people had lived in the community 28 years or longer and did not mm. know each other. Did not know each other. Oh, you live here, I've never seen you before, da da, 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 da. And, what I, and then I started watching people, and what I realized is that white people don't speak to each other.
2: Yeah.
0: They walk past each other with this, look down, if I don't see you, then you're not there, and if something goes wrong, then I didn't see it, and I can't be held responsible kind of thing. And I'm looking at this thinking, wow, there is something weird about this. Um, People of color don't do that, not unless they're in big cities. Now, I know when when I, I, my first husband was white and Jewish, which the Jewish community is a tight-knit committed community, too. So he had white privilege, because he looked white, quote, um, but he was Jewish. My second husband was African-American and from, from Harlem. And when we went to New York, we are walking down 120-something, whatever, I don't know the streets, anyway, in Harlem. Yeah. And I'm speaking to people, he goes, Quit speaking to people. I go, what's the problem? I'm excited to see this many black folks, you know. It's like when I went to Jamaica, my girlfriend told me, you don't have to speak to everybody. I said, I'm just so excited to see so many black people. I just can't believe this, you know. And uh, so I said, well, what's the problem? he goes, you're inviting trouble. Uh You know, big city, stay anonymous, keep your bubble around yourself, and then you don't have that problem of people coming into your space. So... I think that a lot of people of color think that the ignoring that we get from white folks is personal. It is to a degree, but it's also just how white people operate. Mm -hmm. And I've thought about that, I used to, um, consult with this white guy and, um, he, he'd get angry at me because he says, you're, getting, you're, giving white people a, you're giving white people an out. And I said, no, I really think the weather has something to do with it. People of color generally come from warm climates, and we're all reliant on Mother Nature, and we have more of a, a sim, simpatico, uh, um, a living with nature kind of vibe about us. And I think about the um, the the analogy of, you know, you have where you live cassabas and I have watermelons and somebody else has mangoes and they all ripen at different times. So do we just stay in our little pot or do we come out and be friendly with each other and we all eat all year long yeah. as opposed to just eating when our stuff is done? And... And that's how people of color tend to, to operate is as a group and as a collective. Um, and when I have gone into other communities of color, I've seemed to fit in um, because I understand a lot of the culture. That reaching out, being friendly, being warm, understanding the importance of family and, and you know. And when I've gone to white communities, it's a different kind of feel. And it's more of an, this is our place. It's an individualistic thing. Uh,
2: yeah, that's
0: it. And I started thinking about why. And, and I see my neighborhood here. Now, the people who were here when I moved here are gone. And there's young couples here, people in their 30s, who live up and down this street. They don't speak to each other. Yeah. I'm like, wow. And, and I know more of them than they do. Um, one of my neighbors said to me, she goes, Donna, I don't think white people are very friendly. I said, well, I couldn't say. You're, you are white. You know, you, you, you tell me. And she, and she said that. She says, I, we're not friendly with each other. And she says, you know more people on the street than, I, than any of us do. And I said, well, that's only because when somebody moves in, I go over and introduce myself, get their name, their number, give them mine, and say, I'm not going to be in your house. But I just want to know who you are. Mm-hmm. In case something's up, I can call you. You know, my next-door neighbor left for work, left the garage door open. And all his tools and stuff were in there. So I called him and said, hey, your garage door is up. Do you want me to pull it down? I don't know if it's locked or not. he goes, I'll come home and fix it. Thanks for calling. Yeah. But it's that sort
2: of thing. And that's, there, there is that... Um... Did you ever know Helene Rassan? He was a gang worker in mm-hmm. Portland. And he had this great thing that he said one time when we were out in the neighborhood um, and c- kind of work with at-risk youth. Uh, and he had this great line that I've repeated a thousand times. He said, The hood is a neighborhood without the neighbor. right? And that can be anywhere. That can be mm-hmm. in the suburbs. That can be anywhere. Like you got to get people connected to each other to build that livability, um, to bring people together. And so... I think it's I think it's true. There's not enough of that, but I think there's probably. But well, this ties into this discussion about gentrification and how Portland has really sort of changed. I mean, there's this, there's this new generation of people from other places coming into neighborhoods, um, old old neighborhoods, and changing the complexion of the neighborhood and and bringing in. Their money with them, and so a lot of people are being forced out, and so the neighborhood you know, your old neighborhood, North Albina, is probably unrecognizable on some some streets. So I mean, I,
0: I we moved from down under the hill on Borthwick because of of uh, as I like to call it urban renewal, yeah. Negro removal. Yeah, that's that's. And, that's uh, it. and so um, there's a freeway stanchion in our in our yard. Mm-hmm. And every time, every so often I look when I go past, there's a tree that used to be in our yard that is sitting there oh. and uh, that's grow, grown up next to the freeway. And wow. it, I try not to see that tree because if I look at it, it pisses me off. Yeah. And I mean, we had a beautiful house. It was on a double lot, hardwood floors. The
2: street isn't even theres is it? No, the street's still there. Yeah.
0: It's still there. But it feeds into it. No, it feeds into um, instead of going up the hill, it feeds into um, what do you call it? The um, come on brain. I love this concussion. (laughs) It feeds into the uh, city works.
2: Okay.
0: So they've enlarged it into the street and and built you know a a parking a parking lot or something like that. You know storage lot. But, um, yeah, it's it's just a whole different place. And I don't know if you know this. You were talking about the black community. The black community actually used to be in Northwest.
2: The, uh, out by where? Um, Giles Lake, that area?
0: Giles Lake, there were black folks out there. But it also was by... Giles Lake is not... That's north. Mm-hmm. But Northwest, it used to be... Um, you know where the Golden West Hotel is downtown yeah, sure. that was a black right owned hotel so black folks station. lived right around the train station because the black folks were skycaps yeah. and that was another thing that was so amazing is most of the people that I knew growing up a lot i shouldn 't say most of people a lot of the people I knew had college degrees they were skycaps they ran on the road you know they were porters on the on the uh, trains. Um, yeah, my dad was a barber and had a college degree. Mm-hmm. Double degree. Yeah. You know, so um, I I just assumed a lot of times, it, I just assumed if it was, I was talking to black folks, they had degrees. Wow. So that's one of those things where we underutilize people in our culture. I didn't finish telling you the part about where I about the the relationship with the land you were saying man has been here on earth like a hundred thousand years and white people have been in charge politically and started getting politically powerful three thousand years ago Mm -hmm. in that three thousand years we have just about screwed up the Earth. And I've had to think about this. Why have white, why do white people hate the Earth? And I started thinking about it and thought, "hmm, this is where the guy I consulted with told me I was letting white folks off the hook. White people came from Europe. They got landlocked with the snow, with the change in weather. And so they got landlocked up there. they became lighter. There was a great book I had when I first started teaching that talked about the physical attributes of various h- animals and humans in different climates. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that, I that, that, just as an example, um, if you look at, at African people, they tend to have large behinds, big thighs, small calves. If you look at the animals that are in Africa, that are that travel, or run, they tend to have very muscular behinds, big thighs, and small lower legs. Whereas, if you look at the animals that are and and, and large lips, Africans have large lips, broad noses, and. Um, and angular kind of faces. Well, the angularity is to take the sh- shape, the, the deflect the light from the sun. The broad nose is because you've got, and if you look at the animals there too, the nose, the noses are broad to to bring in a large amount of air because you've only got so much air per square inch. And if if it's the air is heated, then it expands. So to get in the amount of oxygen you need, you need to bring in more air. The large lips are to cool the blood. And so it gives more surface area for the blood vessels to be exposed to cool down the blood and to cool down the body. The big behind, the muscular behind, is also a storage place for fat. Sure so that you're gonna have to travel long distances to go find food. So, you know, you've seen films of where people have tracked animals for for days, weeks. So you got that. And once they get an animal, the community comes together to bring it back and everybody eats, and then another hunting party goes out. So again, that community thing, Mm -hmm. and living with the land. White people lived in caves. And I had this theory about that. They lived in the caves to stay away from the large animals. They lived in caves to get away from the elements, which was not friendly, you know, (laughs) cold, wet. And so what you see with white people in terms of body build is they have very long, thin, thin nostrils, long noses, small lips. Small lips so that... You don't have the blood vessels exposed. It holds more body heat in. Long noses, so that when you pu- pull, you get in less right, air. cold air. You get in less air because the co- oxygen is more concentrated in a small area, so you don't need to breathe in as much. And the long nose is to warm the air as it goes so it doesn't freeze your lungs when it's coming down. And the eyes are more open to let more light in. Don't have big butts, cause they're going. They're not doing the long distance kind of thing. They're doing more, needing more. And this is interesting. Big, big calves, more slogging through the snow, having to lift that leg, and wow. make that trek. So. Um, just interesting kinds of physicalities and the animals who are there are like that there too. Bears and you know, warm close white people are hairier than, than than uh people of color are. Again, living with the land and evolution over time. When you're living in your cave, you've got your small group and that's who you're concerned about. You're not concerned about others out there.
2: Yeah, your whole tribe.
0: Yeah. And it was interesting, too. It's it's this attitude, I call it the airplane method of survival, which is put your mask on first and then help your child mm-hmm. or whoever was traveling with you. It's like, that seems awfully...
2: Yeah. counterintuitive.
0: Yeah, you know. Um, and then I had to think about that when my daughter was young. Um, why would I do that? And I thought, well... If I put hers on first and I had enough time to do her, and I die, then I'm going to have to count on the charity of other people to make sure that if the plane crashes that they take her out and take care of her. So I thought, best I had to learn. I need to put mine on first and then be real quick about putting mine on and then save her, and then I can make sure she gets out and she's taken care of. But that was a different yeah. kind of mindset Yeah,
2: I me. always have to, rem- when they say that, I always have to sort of think about it because it's right. so opposite of what the impulse would be.
0: Right, right. But, but it's about taking care of yourself. And that's the that's difference between white culture and black culture. There's a, um, there's a great book, and the guy's name was Don Cheek, and this was back in the 80s that he wrote this book. I can't remember, it's black and white something. But anyway, um, Dr. Don Cheek, yeah. And he talked about the differences. This was the first time I had heard about the differences between cultures, how cultures of color are we, group, nature oriented, whereas European cultures are I mm-hmm. oriented. And there's that difference in how it's set up. And what I have seen is that white people are very eye-oriented. They're about, they will fight each other regularly. But what they do is they come together to put up a wall against people of color. Mm -hmm. And in particular, African Americans. So, um.
2: Well, can we talk about, I mean, I think it's, I think that's one of the things that drags us down as our very individualistic culture there's this great documentary i've, I've sh- shared with my students before called the lost boys of somalia about these somali refugees who come and they are, they're escaping war right. and famine and some of the worst conditions and they end up in in houston texas of all places with these church families that have taken them in and they have the hard time adjusting it's not about oh now i have a roof over my head and i have mm-hmm. some security it's how in america it's every man woman and child for themselves and they're so used to to kind of relying on each other and having right. this cohesive sense that it's us, uh, that that's the that's the culture shock. Not that, you know, there are 300 flavors of ice cream. It's that all these people are just thinking about themselves instead right. of the tribe of Americans. And it's it's a very clear picture of what our values are versus, you know, other parts of the world. So, in and, and, and time remaining, I, I want to talk about Oh, talks. I haven't
0: gotten to your main points. I'm yeah. sorry. No, no,
2: I, no, this is all leading up to... Why you've taken on this issue of talking about the issue of race in Portland and what, what the challenges are? For, first of all, you know what was the original idea for doing it, and and you know, have what have, what have we still got to do in terms of having this conversation about race? So let's start with the origin story of, <laughs> the of, origin of, race, talks. of race talks.
0: Um, well the. I think the origin started with the factoid that by 2040 there would be more people of color than there are white people. And before that, I went to a church, which was called Science of Mind. I think they've changed it to New Thought. I don't go to the church here. This was in the Bay Area. And there was a premise that made so much sense to me, and it has changed my view of how I view the world. It's that there are two basic emotions, love and fear. And all the other emotions emanate from those two. And I just started going through different emotions. And what are, what are the, yeah, I could see that, that there was a lot of fear that was connected. And I wonder why people fought each other. And I worked at Nordstrom's back in the 80s um, and realized that people were just nasty to each other. They didn't mind the managers doing well, but the salespeople, because everybody was working on commission, they just fought each other all the time. There was one person they didn't fight, happened to be a black guy who was young, 20s, going to ministerial school, and I thought, why do they not fight him? The reason they didn't fight him, I found out later, was because he was always close to being number number one, but never was. Mm. Once or twice a month, he might, might get it out of 30 days, you know, with, and so people were like, oh, he got it. I'm so proud. I'm so happy for him. He, and found out he was always looking at the tape. So we thought he was looking at the tape, trying to make money, see how much he had made. He says, no, I'm giving up sales. I don't want to be number one. You notice I'm always within 10 or $15 and number one, he says, I do that on purpose. Like, wow. So he's avoiding being standing out. He's, stepping back, playing small. What I realized working at Nordstrom's is that competition, people are are competing to keep back their competition for goods and services. They want to hold others back from being ahead of them. That was the basis for it. The fact that the issue of I want to eliminate you as competition. My emotions are either love and fear. And the factoid that by 2040, there would be more people of color than there are white people. It said to me, we're going to have a problem. White people are... Because white people are accustomed to being on top. One of the things that... um I see nowadays with young people is that they do not have a lot of resiliency. They don't have tenacity, resiliency, or persistence, and they're used to having everything. You know, we've got Google now. Everything comes within thirty seconds. Right. You don't have to worry about. You know, what do you what do you mean? Look in a book. What do you mean? Card catalog. Figure out where this. Look in an index and figure. No, I just hit Google, and all the information comes to me. So. I realize we're coming from all of these thoughts, having a confluence together. This spells trouble. People don't give up power easily. And so I, about that time also at Portland Public Schools, I became involved in uh, courageous conversations about race. And Glenn Singleton had put together a formula for talking about race that made it easy for people to get it. It made it, We our school was one of the beacon schools within Portland School District and here in the state. And there was a person that I worked with who was just a mean person, happened to be a white person. And this person um, made white folks cry used to have white folks in my office, I, I did discipline at the middle school, I used to have folks in my office crying. Why is this person so mean? Why are they doing this? Da, 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 da. These are white people crying. Male, female, upset. We were doing the study about race, and this person got it. Was able to look outside of themselves and understand how this another group could think. And I thought, wow, if this person can get the concept... Everybody can get it because this person doesn't have any regard for anybody. Forget color. I know that my color was upsetting this person, but it was the whole thing. So what I realized is that we have to start talking. We have to start. People need to get to know each other, have relationship. And that's what the purpose of race talks is. We use race as a way to talk, uh, uh, to focus the conversation, and I always like to say that race talks. Race talks was never meant to do deep work. That's not the main purpose of race talks. Race talks is um, what what is marijuana? It's a um, what do they call a it? Gateway drug. A gateway drug. <laughs> well, r- race talks is a gateway activity. Got it. And you know, if you want to go find out more information, then do that. We try to encourage people to come, sit down. You know, we have a panel, we have a speaker, we have a film. And then afterwards, we have small group discussions with guiding questions to help guide that discussion. And recently, we've had um, we've we've gotten grants so that we're writing a facilitation training for our facilitators. Before we had, we teamed with Uniting to Understand Racism, and they provided facilitators. Well, they've gone out of existence, so now we have to find our own. And we were using another organization here in Portland who is supposed to do mediation and resolution training and services and their folks don't come so we're kind of out there on our own and so we have volunteer people in the audience well it's not working well so um but the whole idea is to just get people talking and so at the very end of the evening we have a drawing um, and McMinimans is, is my sponsor. I went to McMinimans. I'm, I'm a And the other piece that, that I, I am about is win-win. I want to win, and I want you to win. So we need to talk to each other to find out what we both need so that we can both have our own satisfaction. And I don't think most people do that. I think people are looking at what do they need but what they don't recognize is that if you don't find out what your, your neighbor needs, what your partner needs, what this other person needs, they're going to be coming for what you got. Yeah. Because we tend to look at other people and think that the grass is greener. And they've done studies and found out that the grass is greener on the other side. And it doesn't matter which side you're on. It's the way the light reflects that the grass does look greener from the other side. So... We have to, the goal at Race Talks is for people to just sit and talk. And after being out here, I realize white folks just need to learn how to talk to each other, mm. too. They, they've got fears and misconceptions and stuff about each other because they're in their own little insular pods, and these damn cell phones don't help any.
2: Yeah, yeah, technology's really oh. magnified our isolation.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and, and I think that if you look in communities of color, the United States is a perfect example. All of the, the mass murderer, the profile is a white male who doesn't fit in. That's who mass murderers are. We've only seen one case of where there was a, a, a black person doing mass murder killing. And that was you remember uh, Chief Moose, who used to be our police right. chief, saw that back in D.C. Yeah, right. I don't but that guy was only killing the people. Sniper. Right, he was he was doing that to hide the fact that he was going to kill his wife, so they wouldn't come for him. So the goal was to kill her. Those other people were residual, but the mass murderer is a white male who is angry and. Feeling like yeah, he's not
2: getting his. I, you know, I, I, this is something that I've written about and and, and have researched a lot, and it's exactly that case. It's the guy. When they say he was a loner, that's the person they should be most concerned about because right. they're usually, you know, these guys that have experienced some loss. They lost their job, they lost their wife, or something, and because that happens to a lot of people who don't go on shooting sprees, right? And they don't have a social network to plug into to go have a beer with their friend and say, "Hey, my wife left me." They're they're isolated
0: that's one of the things we ask at race talks is how many of you know your neighbors do you know three to the left three to the right three in front of you by no i mean do you know their name they know your name you've been in their house they've been in your house you have their phone number the other question i like to ask is do you have people of color if you're white do you have people of color who are on your speed dial? And if you're a person of color, do you have people of other ethnicities or white people on your speed dial? By speed dial, I mean somebody you can call up and say, hey, let's go to the movie, or hey, I got a promotion, let's go have a drink, or hey, me and the spouse got into a fight, uh, can I come over and talk? Just somebody, and the question is, if you don't have those kind of people, why not? So I think we, you know, At the end of race talks, of every race talks, we have a drawing um, with a gift certificate from to for two people to get to know each other. I always call it hookup. You look somebody somebody you want to hook up with, but nowadays hookup means something else. So Okay, so what's the word you use? I don't know. Anyway, the social word is look across the room and find someone you'd like to get to know, someone that looks interesting or that you, you know, Or try to find somebody outside of your table. It might be somebody at your table. And so the two of them exchange contact information, and then their name goes into um, the pot for a drawing. And the drawing is for them to go and share a meal and just talk. That's great. Don't talk about race. Talk about this is who I am. Find out what you have in common. You know, just talk to people. I have made it a habit to go out and talk to people. I see you on the corner. Hey, that's a nice looking shirt you have. Or if somebody holds the door for me, I always say, tell your mother she done good. You know, they're like, what? It's like, <laughs> oh, okay, thank you. Like, yeah, your mom did, did a good job of training you. So um, we need to get out of our own personal hurt, our own personal insecurity, and reach out to each other. And talk to each other. Because the kinds of... My experience has been, having been married to a white male and to a black male, and I have dated men from other ethnicities, and I have friends from all different ethnicities. My gosh, we're all the same. We all want the same things. So...
2: Yeah. That sounds like a a, a good uh, kind of way to wrap this up but there's one question i have to ask you and have done in doing this work is is there and this is a huge question there's probably a dozen answers to it but is there one particular thing in doing this race talk work that you feel is the most challenging in talking to white people about the issue of race is there one thing that's just like beating your head against the wall to try to get people to see something or understand something
0: i think that most white people I think that most people of color, because we live in a white world, we understand that white people are people, that we have some we have some myths and misconceptions, but I think a lot of white people don't realize that people of color are just like them. That's what we have to look at, is what is our goal? Is my goal to build my self-esteem by stepping on yours and saying you're a dumb so-and-so and... Or is my goal to get you to see another way to approach life? And that's how I approach race talks. Let's have a topic. Let's make everybody feel included. And understand that the enemy is, is you know, that we talk about the seven deadly sins. Greed and avarice are among them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like right now, I just saw something on Facebook where, In South Africa, they have taken the land from the wealthy white, from white people, and and now there's some white people starting to live in shanty towns. So I said, how is that right? How is that okay? If it wasn't good for black folks, and we didn't like it, what makes you think white folks are going to like that? This means we're going to continue the cycle. we got to break the cycle. we got to understand that there's enough for everybody, and to use that mindset of, we work together to live off of the land, live within the land, to live to make it work. Oh, Jesus, please help me not to become an asshole.
1: Let's make it work. Thanks, Donna. Donna and I had uh, a longer conversation than that hour that you just heard. She has a wealth of all kinds of information about Portland and the the history and some of the theories uh, that we need to exist in this world. So I really appreciate uh, living in the same city as Donna Maxey. We're all better off for it. Uh, I'll include a link to her race talks organization that holds its monthly events at the Kennedy School here in Portland. Uh, on my website, which is watchingthewheelsdad.net watchingthewheelsdad.net all the episodes of Recovering Asshole are chronicled there, you can find them on watchingthewheelsdad.net uh, as always, you can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes, although now on iTunes we are called Recovering Privilege because iTunes doesn't like the word asshole apparently, even though everyone, everyone's everyone got one, uh, so find us there if you do, give us a nice review and uh five stars <laughs> or four but not three and um we've got some more conversations lined up we'll be talking to some good people and i'll get them out to you when i'm good and ready uh but this was a great reminder of our little motto that we are all works in progress so let's get to work
0: the only truth
2: i <laughs>